listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Let me tell you about my company, Gulfstream Motorsports, 727-541-1741. I have over 35 years' experience with classic, vintage sport and racing cars. I do appraisals, consulting, and pre-purchase inspections. Before you buy your next rare classic, the car of your dreams, give me a call at Gulfstream Motorsport 727-541-1741. Also, due to my 28 years' experience in the auto salvage business, I am very good with wrecks. So if your car has been in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call me at 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for lost value of your repaired vehicle. That's Gulfstream Motorsports, 727-541-1741. And be sure to tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, Wednesdays, 7 to 8 p.m. on the Tantalk Radio Network, AM 1340. Sunday, February 18th, 1979. A blizzard has left the Midwest and most of the Northeast buried under as much as 30 inches of snow. Meanwhile, in northern Florida, CBS was preparing the first ever live broadcast of the Daytona 500. Who is going to watch cars run around in circles for four hours was always the question. But with several technical innovations, CBS was hoping to make that time fly by. For the first time, viewers would be right next to the driver, thanks to an in-car camera. CBS also debuted the track-level camera. These days, they're robots. In 1979, they needed human operators. The cameraman, a fellow named Joe Sakota, volunteered to do this camera with very little protection other than a motorcycle helmet. His instructions were, if you see a car break away, duck down behind the concrete. Live from Daytona Beach, Florida, a CBS Sports Special, the 1979 Daytona 500. The field was prime. Richard Petty, Daryl Waltrip, and driving the number two car, a 27-year-old rookie named Dale Earnhardt. I think the competition that year was incredible. And uh, it was anybody's race two-thirds of the way down. Two laps to go to decide the most incredible with only five miles left in the race, Donnie Allison, who'd never won the Daytona 500, had the lead. With two-time Daytona champion Cale Yarborough on his rear bumper, as he'd been for the last 19 laps. And the white flag is out. One lap to go. I glanced in the mirror uh, in the middle of one and two and saw Cale going down. And that's when I decided, no, he's not coming under me, so I started down. Donnie wasn't going to let him through. You know, he'd lived his entire life to win this one race, and it was there. It was in a mile and a half. So there wasn't any feather footing here. This was flat out, full war. It's all come down to this. Out of turn two, Donnie Allison in first. Where will Kale make his move? He comes to the inside. Allison and Yarborough out of contention, the race was hurtling to a chaotic finish. Now our lead cameraman is no longer with the leader because those two guys are no longer the leader. It's now Petty, but we lost track of third place. Race announcer Ken Squire helped CBS locate the new leaders. Petty, down the back. 
back straightaway come the leaders now. Two cars are out. In the backstretch are the leaders. Ken is imploring us in the truck, verbally telling us where Petty is. They're still up in turns three and four. CBS's cameras found the leaders just a quarter lap before the finish. Here they come. Waltrip trying to slingshot. Petty is out in front at the line. Waltrip. Petty wins it. But the excitement was just beginning. Well, you got to document him coming down pit road and the crew jumping on the car and uh, the excitement of that. But now I'm seeing on one of the monitors the blimp. There's a fist fight going on on the backstretch. There's a fight between Cale Yarborough and Donnie Allison. The Teppers overflowing. They're angry. They know they have lost. In fact, the fight was between Cale Yarborough and Donnie's older brother, Bobby Allison, who, after finishing 11th in the race, had stopped to offer his brother a ride back to the garage. Cale walks over to Bobby's car. He says... It's all your fault, you son of You've been blocking all day and punch Bobby. I just uh, really couldn't help what happened. I, I, I couldn't control myself. I looked and a few drops of blood hit down in my lap. And I said to myself, I have to get out of the car and address this right now or run from him the rest of my life. I was raised with Bobby. I've seen that look on his face before. And I knew, I knew what was going to happen. Somebody was going to get punched. So I climbed out of the car and... And, of course, my story is that he started beating on my fist with his nose. For millions of snowbound Americans, the excitement of the 1979 Daytona 500 was the perfect introduction to the world of NASCAR. For NASCAR, it was the perfect storm. When you pick up the papers the next morning, and it's the lead story on the front page of the New York Times sports section, I mean, you know you've hit a home run. All of a sudden, on a Monday morning in New York, we were elevator talk. Now, that was pretty cool. Okay, hey, boys and girls, guys and gals, listeners, you're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. How are you doing this evening? Hey, we got a great show for you tonight. I don't know if you guys caught that clip, but that was a clip of the 1979 Daytona 500. Bill, how are you doing tonight? Who's your guest tonight? Ken Squire? Mike, yes, Ken Squire. We should have a stroke. 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 Stroke by Billy Squire. Oh, that was Billy. No, no, no. Actually, he was in the movie Stroker Ace. So you know which was that uh, movie with Burt Reynolds it was kind of a NASCAR film. But anyway, we'll talk about that a little bit later. So uh, we got some cool songs coming up. We got Ken Squire coming on this evening. Uh, really cool guy. So anyway, hey, are we ready to fire up that first song? Let's go ahead and do that because we want to get to our guest.
incidental murder Or nothing to show When the judge of constipation And go to his head And his wife's aggravation You're soon enough dead That's the same old story Same old song and dance My friend That's the same old story Same old song and dance My friend Got you with cocaine And found with your gun Smooth face a lawyer can get you undone. Say love ain't Satan on the south side of town. You could love, but you ain't gonna find it around. That's the same old story, same old song and dance, my friend. That's the same old story, same old story, same old song and We'll make a fortune. We'll call it, uh, Instant Simonize. Instant Simonize, you lame brains. You can already buy Instant Simonize everywhere. Instant Simonize? They thought of it too? Simonize thinks of everything. Try Instant Simonize, another easy new way to brighten your day. From Just Simonize say, Company. show me the Carfax.
Okay, we're back, and you're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Hey, run your computers and Google Tantalk1340.com, and you can see us live on the studio. I'm in here. I'm sporting my brand-new Nostalgic Radio and Cars T-shirt. Okay, so if you guys want one, give us a call here. We will sell you one. They're 20 bucks. 727-541-1741. That is my cell phone number. Give me a call, and we will sell you a T-shirt with the famous 57 Thunderbird gasser on it. Okay, or you can go to our website, GolfStreamMotorsports.com, and order your official Nostalgic Radio and Cars t-shirt. At any rate, okay, what do we got going on here? Uh, we got some more, hey, get any more sound effects over there? Hang on a second, I got to bend over and pick up my paper because I lost my notes. Uh, maybe I can reach over and get it here. Show me the car there we go. Okay, hey, yeah, be sure and check out our website, okay? GolfStreamMotorsports.com. Check out all the cool stuff we got on there. We got hats coming pretty soon. They're in the works right now as we speak. Hey, don't forget this weekend. Well, actually, tomorrow is uh, the big Thursday night car show at Quaker Steak and Lube. And then on Saturday, we got the Coffee and Cars at the DuPont Registry, okay? Two, three hundred cars will show up there. We will be walking around there. We may have some shirts with us that we will be able to sell. So if you want some, that starts at seven o'clock in the morning till nine. Then everybody runs over to Cracker Barrel for the greatest breakfast on the planet. Actually, if you want to get there early, you could. You could get there at six o'clock in the morning because they start lining up. Otherwise, by the time you get there at seven, there won't be a parking spot. Don't forget, Ted Nugent is coming live to Ruth Eckert Hall August sixth, and we have a fresh supply of Ted Nugent for President bumper stickers. And Spirit of the Wild bumper sticker. So give us a call here at the studio during our radio show, Nostalgic Radio and Cars, 727-441-3000. That's 727-441-3000. And get your sticker on. Anyway, big shout-out to Dougie at the sign shop. If you need a sign, a banner, decals, give Dougie a call, 727-392-4852. That's 727-392-4852. As a matter of fact, hey, Doug, thanks, because it was Doug's suggestion to try to get Ken Squire on our radio show this evening. So, Doug, this uh, guest is for you, as they say. Uh, okay, and a special thanks to our Fred Christian, who was on the show for a few minutes last week at Dead On Screen Printing. He's the one that's responsible for our great-looking T-shirts. Okay, very good. And if you need a T-shirt, a hat, a mug, anything, silkscreen, give uh, Christian a call at 727-239-6770. That's 727-239-6770. So, hey, let's go to a commercial break, and it's almost time to get our guests on the show. Hey, listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on Westway Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends, Corey, Jed, and Kurt at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Car sent you. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radium Cars. I'd like to tell you about a great place to eat right on the main part of Clearwater Beach. Located at 333 South Gulfview Boulevard. 
Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill has two floors of food, drink, and fun. They have daily specials, happy hour, nightly entertainment. Their menu caters to seafood lovers as well as land lovers. Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill, 727-608-2065. They're open in the morning for breakfast until 1 a.m. So stop by and visit my friends, Turtle, Eddie, and Polly, and all the girls and staff at Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill. That's 727-608-2065. Mention Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and you never know, you might get a free drink. That's Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill on Clearwater Beach, 727-608-2065. If you like golf, enjoy affordable golf at Magnolia Valley Golf Club, located on Massachusetts Avenue in Newport Ritchie. Play for as little as $15 after 2 p.m. The club has two beautiful courses to choose from, an 18-hole championship par 72 plus another nine-hole executive par 33. Join their open leagues on Wednesday afternoons at 4 and Sunday mornings at 8. Call 727-847-2342 for tee times or visit their website, magnoliavalleygolfclub.com. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Let me tell you about my company, Gulfstream Motorsports, 727-541-1741. I have over 35 years' experience with classic, vintage sport and racing cars. I do appraisals, consulting, and pre-purchase inspections. Before you buy your next rare classic, the car of your dreams, give me a call at Gulfstream Motorsports, 727-541-1741. Also, due to my 28 years' experience in the auto salvage business, I am very good with wrecks. So if your car has been in a wreck, Call me for a diminished value report. Call me at 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for lost value of your repaired vehicle. That's Gulfstream Motorsports, 727-541-1741. And be sure to tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, Wednesdays, 7 to 8 p.m. on the Tantalk Radio Network, AM 1340.
Hi everybody, this is David Hobbs, racing driver and commentator for Speed Channel, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Forget about Logan taking over, okay, Flat Nose? You always said that any one of us could challenge you, Butch. Well, because I figured no one would do it. Figured wrong, Butch. You guys can't want Logan. Well, at least he's with us, Butch. You've been spending a lot of time gone. Well, that's because everything's different now. Guns or knives, it's Butch. It's harder now. you got to plan more. you got to prepare more. Guns or knives? Neither. Pick. I don't want to shoot with you, Harvey. Anything you say, Butch. Maybe there's a way to make a profit in this. Bet on Logan. I would, but who'd bet on you? Sundance. When we're done, if he's dead, you're welcome to stay. <clears throat> Listen, I don't mean to be a sore loser, but uh, when it's done, if I'm dead, kill him. Love to. No, no, not yet. Not until me and Harvey get the rules straightened out. Rules? In a knife fight? No rules. Well, if there ain't going to be any rules, let's get the fight started. Someone count one, two, three, go. One, two, three, go. I was really rooting for you, Butch. <laughs> well, thank you, Flat Nose. That's what sustained me in my time of trouble. Okay, we're back, and you're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. And, Bill, you know what? You're sporting that really, really stunning-looking Nostalgic Radio and Cars T-shirt tonight with that famous 1957 Thunderbird gasser on it. But you know what, ladies and gentlemen? It's time to introduce our special guest for the evening. Let me tell you a little bit about this gentleman. Okay, he's been in the business since he was 12 years old. That is the radio business. He's been an American sportscaster. He's been a motorsports editor. He was one of the first commentators to introduce lap-by-lap and flag-to-flag commentary at NASCAR. In NASCAR, it gives me great pleasure to welcome to the show from Waterbury, Vermont, Ken Squire. Ken, are you there? I am here. Thank you. How you doing? Terrific. Actually, you should be doing this because you are a professional broadcaster, right, Chief? Well... Whatever. <laughs> Whatever. Okay, well, hey, anyway, uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself. Give us a little background history. we got a ton of listeners out there. We've actually had some requests, and your name came up out of the hat, so you are the lucky one. Well, I have dogs, and my wife has bees and <laughs> sheep and chickens, and uh, we have a small farm, uh, about 30 acres, uh, up here in the mountains, and it's a beautiful night up here, just absolutely perfect when, Looking out over the Worcester Range, we just sat outside and had a little lasagna, and uh, I couldn't ask for anything better. It's pretty what? cool. Okay. You got maple trees in your backyard, too? Oh, sure. Okay. Oh, sure. <laughs> yes, okay. Well, tell us about your race car background, actually your racing commentating background. Tell us a little bit how you got into broadcasting. Well, I was born in it. Uh, my, my dad was an announcer, and uh, he was... Uh, I really was a newspaper guy for a weekly paper, and the guy that owned the paper one day in 1929 said, Lloyd, more people can hear than can read. I think we ought to have a radio station. And so they set about, and uh, by 1931, they got the thing done up here in Vermont. And uh, my dad and my mother got together in 34, and I came along in 35, and and here we are, uh, about where I began. In fact, uh, I'll end up exactly where I began because I was born in what became the V.L. Perkins uh, Furniture Store and Funeral Parlor. <laughs> and I intend to wrap it up right there. You didn't wrap it up right there. Okay. How did you get it? How did your love for motorsports start? 
well, my dad was also a harness race announcer, and uh, the standard breads were a big deal in New England, you know, the sulkies, the bikes. <clears throat> but for a kid, uh, you know, one afternoon of, of uh, sulky racing was about three years long. And uh, the good news was that if I was a good chap for the week, four or five days of harness racing, uh, on the weekend, uh, either the uh, stunt shows or, in the case, bigger fairs, I uh, would have an automobile race. And I saw my first automobile race, and that was it. I was finished. I didn't need anything else. That was your goal in life then, right, at that point? Well, no. I was just an admirer, just a fan. Oh, okay. And, uh, it was a great period. It was the end of, uh, you know, they'd shut down racing in World War II. <clears throat> and when the war ended, the first national championship automobile race in the United States uh, a AAA affair uh, was run in Essex Junction, Vermont, on the fairgrounds. And Ted Horn came over from California. Actually, I think his car was parked in uh, New Jersey. There was a gasoline alley down in, in New Jersey. And uh, he, he had a whale of a race, and he defeated Lee Wallard. And I was there to see it. And I was a Ted Horn fan uh, uh, until the day he died. Well, long after, I'm still a Ted Horn fan after he lost his life at DuCoin on the mile. Yeah, a great racer. Now, when did you, uh, there was somewhere I was reading about a uh, racetrack you were involved with up there in Vermont, and I guess you guys started that in 1960 or something like that. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Thunder Road or something? Running, we're running the mid-season championships tomorrow night Okay. Uh, at uh, Barrie, Vermont, granite capital of the world, um, largest granite quarries in the world, and... Uh, Good, strong, hardy people, and a lot of uh, great Italians who uh, uh, carve granite. And that granite's shown up all over the uh, U.S. Supreme Court and the Washington Monument, places like that. So uh, uh, Rock of Ages uh, has their their main uh, offices in Barrie, Vermont, and that's the home of Thunder Road. We're right up there beside some of those quarries uh, up on a, uh, on, a <laughs> on a hill called Quarry Hill. And uh, we've been running there for 50 years, every Thursday night, at the nation's site of excitement. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great little high-bank, quarter-mile asphalt. Originally built for midgets, and... uh, but that that was another story, and by the by that time, actually, by 1960, the the midgets were on the wane, and stock cars were in, and uh, you might have grown up with all your enthusiasm for Indianapolis or uh, reading about the Formula One, the World Championship, if you will, Formula One in the 30s in Europe. Um, but the stock cars took over. And before you knew it, uh, after the war, there were 22 racetracks in the state of Vermont. Um, and we could run, as I got to high school, we could run uh, five nights a week in a place called Burlington, Vermont, which is our major metropolitan area. Uh, we're the home of University of Vermont and several other colleges. St. Michael's College is there and uh, Champlain. So uh, we had we, we had plenty of racing right here in our backyard, but it was all with uh, those uh, pre-World War II cars, most of them Ford Flatheads. And uh, so as time went on, uh, the opportunity availed itself to, to go build a racetrack and uh, so I was very fortunate to have some friends that thought it was a very good idea. 
And Thunder Road still thunders every Thursday night, and uh, then at the end of the season we run our, our biggest race in Vermont. You know, uh, uh, Florida, uh, California has the Rose Bowl, and Florida the Orange Bowl, and they used to have the Fiesta Bowl down in Arizona and so forth. Well, we thought that we needed a bowl, too. So we have the Milk Bowl, uh, the great dairy capital that we are. We still make the best cheese in the world, no matter what Wisconsin says. <laughs> and uh, So we run it, and uh, it's a great little race. It pays uh, about $110,000 this year. And we have a, a good group of cars. Uh, they're similar to a NASCAR. It's a plastic car. Um, and, and we have a lot of them in this part of the world. Uh, so they all congregate for a three-day stint uh, at Barry, Vermont. And uh, it's a different race than any other that people get to see. How are the fans up there? I mean, they're pretty loyal fans. Is it, is it uh, pretty much a, you have strong, obviously, circle track slash NASCAR following up there? Are they pretty committed as they are oh, in sure. the South? Well, uh, Ricky Craven uh, was a hero at our track, uh, you know, the fellow that won that closest race at Darlington. And uh, we've had some others come close, and, and in 1969 we lost what we thought was going to be our our big breakthrough, and that was uh, with Don McTavish, who was killed at Daytona in the uh, Saturday race. And Pete Hamilton used to be around here, and we were pretty proud of him. He was a New Englander. Mm-hmm. But this uh, New England actually was the home of the NASCAR Modifieds. Uh, as much as in the South, uh, they Lonsdale, Rhode Island, uh, in, the, in the mid-'40s, uh, was running stock cars, and Bill Franson and uh, Bill Tuthill uh, were involved in that facility, and the modifieds have stayed. I saw this past Saturday. I think the best modified race I, I have, may have ever seen. They had uh, about forty of them on the mile at the New Hampshire Motor Speedway, and in the last half of a one hundred mile race, they officially uh, uh, swapped the lead. It was either twenty four or twenty eight times. But they just ran the wheels off each other, and they drop kick each other all the way around the racetrack, and there were no cautions. They just beat on each other. It was a whale of a show, and uh, uh, that that's emblematic of what's up here. But Thunder Road does pretty well. Um, we ran the Governor's Cup, and the Governor uh, Shumlin was there last Thursday night, and uh, there were a little over five thousand people here. And I know there's not that much to do up here, and we actually do have more power, more more people than cows now, <laughs> but the people do turn out for uh, stock car racing. It's our our biggest uh, summer sports activity. Okay, now you started. Uh, it says here on your bio, it says started in Daytona in 1964. Would that be commentating in, at Daytona in 1964? No, no, that that was uh, a PA announcing, oh, which PA I love no. to do. Okay, I think it's a lost art, and I I think that's. There are some good ones. Dave Moody is one of the very best. And he started at Thunder Road and Barry, and he was there for 15 or 20 years before he moved on to Cirrus. And I think he should be on television. He's so good. Uh, but we've had others up here as well. So uh, uh, the interest and enthusiasm uh, for American stock car racing was not just in the southeast. It, it blossomed all over the country when those young men came back from the Pacific, and they came back from Europe, and they sure as hell weren't going to stay home and mow the lawn. 
Now, let me ask you a question. Um, I'm just going to digress. I'm going to jump forward here to the past uh, Daytona 500 that just took place here um, a couple of months back when, uh, I, was it Montoya, ran in the back of the dryer? Yeah. Uh, outside yeah. of that being kind of like unexplainable, what would you say would be one of the other most, and this is, this is actually an email from uh, one of our listeners, what was one of the most unusual, odd, unexplainable, silly, goofy things that you've seen in NASCAR over the last uh, 40, 50 years? That, that just sticks in your mind. I mean, and I know there's got to be a lot of them, but just is there something else that just kind of pops in your mind? cars that Tiny Lund drove into the swimming pool, I can't think offhand. Um, well, now tell us about that. I, I never heard that story about no, Tiny Lund. No, there, well, there, that was quite a contest at one time. Okay. That, that's long over. Okay. Everybody's grown up and matured. Oh, okay. And we lost Tiny, of course, at, at uh, Talladega. But, um, uh, and, and he was an interesting character because originally he was from Harlan, Iowa. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, the racing capital of North America is Iowa. Uh, they still have 35 uh, dirt tracks that run weekly all summer long. Now they have that beautiful new paved track up there, which is as good as anything in the country. And uh, whether you're down on the southern side of, of Iowa or up on the very top from Keokuk on, uh, they, they have a lot of racing. They always did. And they brought a lot of great race drivers down to uh, the, the Daytona facility in particular over the years, of which Tiny was, of whom Tiny was one. So uh, it, that, that was part of that whole revolution that took place, uh, an outcropping of, uh, from World War II. And, uh, and Vermont was just as much a part of it, the state of Maine. Uh, and certainly in Florida, boy, there were tracks everywhere. Down around Hialeah, they, they had those crazy Allison brothers, Red Farmer, and they, they, they moved up to Alabama, became the Alabama gang, and cleaned house up there. It was, uh, it was a time uh, of, of old, old-time barnstorming as much as anything with the stock cars. So the tracks weren't very safe, uh, nor the cars. And it, it got cleaned up as time went on, and... Uh, Bill France came along at the uh, absolute perfect, appropriate moment, and and Senior, uh, the tall man, uh, he he had a, a sense about promotion like few other people ever had, and thank God they threw him out of Indianapolis uh, when he was up there with Thorne's car, and uh, he got his he, he got his Irish up and uh, went down and out of nothing in that swamp. Uh, built the Daytona International Speedway, which has given us the most competitive racing uh, and the most competitive series that the world has ever seen. Your thoughts on racing NASCAR, what decade would you say some serious changes started taking place? Would it be the late 60s, early 70s, 80s, 90s, or currently? I mean, Well, it progressed. It, it, it really was It teared up over a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, those original characters of Thunder Road gave it the fabric that they needed with Weatherly and Turner and the fabulous Flock Brothers and all that crowd, Joe Littlejohn and, and all. And, and the teams were then based in Spartanburg, South Carolina, where Bud Moore came from. Mm-hmm. And there was a guy, another example of World War II. He was a decorated war hero. I can't remember how many medals he got, but he got shot up a lot. Yeah, he had a number of Purple Hearts. Yeah, three of them, yeah, I think. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. And I, he, he also got a, a, not a distinguished cross, but, but something that was above that. That matters not. 
but but that was the the home of those teams at at one time, and uh, that was going on all over the country. I've always thought that uh, the South had an advantage, and the advantage was it wasn't part of organized sport. Organized sport in those days was defined as uh, Boston down to Washington, Washington to St. Louis, St. Louis up to Chicago, back through Detroit uh, to New York. That was organized sport. That was professional baseball and the beginnings of professional football. And the South, uh, well, after a while they had Augusta, and they always had the Tide, uh, but there wasn't that much organized sport. And it was France who took uh, all these, uh, what they would call today outlaws, and uh, put them under one banner and, and started a point plan. And the other big thing, which everybody disregards today, was he promised to pay the purse. I mean, over and over again, we all went through the experience of racing, and we, they couldn't find the promoter when the show was over. And <clears throat> with Bill, that that was one of the bases for getting NASCAR started. There was a whole lot of that. Uh, a, a lot of uh, grifters were, were in as promoters. That didn't help things. But France uh, had a great sense of organization. He had a great sense of promotional skills. And he also had that dream about late model cars, because the first cars that were run in NASCAR were modifieds. They, they were called modifieds then, and they're still called modifieds today. But that's where it grew from. At the same time, he really felt that with 22% of the gross national product, the automobile, the Detroit automobile, that they spent all that money advertising, promoting uh, building the romance of the American motor car, that was what we should be racing. And voila, I'll never forget, he, he told me years ago when I first went down there, he said, you know, you know, by the year 2000, we're going to be major league. We're going to be right up there. We're going to be up there with baseball. We're going to be up there with football and so forth and so on. Well, of course, he was wrong by about six months. But... Uh, he sure had it right, and he understood how to get it done. He understood the need for uh, promotion and publicity. <clears throat> and in the South, whether it was in Spartanburg or in Charlotte or in Atlanta, or, or even there was a big track in Augusta, a mile, mile and a half, uh, throughout that area, uh, they put their stamp on it. And uh, they got into Lakewood in Atlanta, Georgia. That was a hell of a track, mile, dirt very dangerous, lost a lot of drivers there. Um, and he, he snapped the whip, and, and uh, he got it done. And also a guy named Bruton Smith, who now owns uh, several tracks, including the New Hampshire track and the Charlotte Motor Speedway and Atlanta and Bristol and uh, Las Vegas and Infinium up there in San Francisco, those tracks. At the same time, he had an organization, too, but uh, he got out and went in the Army for a while and came back. Uh, Bill was, was ensconced as the real leader, and uh, uh, Bruton became a promoter and built the Charlotte Motor Speedway with Curtis Turner. I don't know if that was a plus or a minus. Curtis, Curtis was a wild man, and, of course, he was one of the legends of that early racing was Curtis Turner. Uh, 
they, they could easily make the Curtis Turner movie, and uh, it, it would be as big as Smokey and the Bandit. Would it be fair to say that, you know, because there's the cliche out there, you know, back in the old days when driving and racing and men were men, does, do you think that cliche applies today, or do you think today it's just more personalities and with the technology of the cars? I mean, they're good, don't get me wrong, but they're not drivers like the men were men type drivers. Well, you know, in those of. days, it was mostly dirt. Okay. All of those tracks were dirt, and that was a special piece of business. We always thought that the, the kids up here in New England had an advantage because they all grew up on dirt roads, and, and they drove like hell. And during Prohibition, uh a lot of our guys got chased all the time uh, because they'd go up over the frontier and bring stuff back. But in the South, they had one big advantage, <clears throat> and it was a little like what they had in Florida with, with, the, with the boats and the offshore power boats. Uh, they had the guys that would build the, build the boats that could outrun the cops, and then they would build boats for the cops to outrun those that, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That, that went on all the time. And places like Atlanta and Charlotte, Spartanburg, um, uh, Alabama, over there in uh, Birmingham, in those regions. But any place that was dry was naturally wide open, and and that was a a wild period in those 30s. And uh, those first first drivers, uh, you you talk about Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and all that stuff, uh, they relived those days for real. Lloyd C. and Roy Hall who France always said were two of the greatest drivers that ever lived and nobody's ever heard of. Of course, Lloyd, he won on uh, Labor Day at Lakewood in Atlanta and went home that night, got shot and killed. Uh, they got to fight, and I think, over sugar uh, up there in the mountains of uh, North Georgia. And uh, we lost Lloyd C. And uh, Roy Hall, he, he was uh, just an, an incredibly good dirt track racer. You know, you either had it or you didn't have it. That was where the real test of, of the man was, because with with those heavy cars floating those things around on a dirt mile track was 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 a sight to behold. And Curtis was was part of that. He he came a little later down the road with Joe Weatherly and that gang, um, and it was a very dangerous time. You know that. They lost a lot of drivers on the track and a lot of them on the road trying to outrun the revenuers. Uh, and that history of, of building machinery that could really fly uh, came out of a lot of it out of the Cherokee Garage down in Atlanta. It was sort of a mecca as, as things moved on um, for people that really wanted to drive with the authority of a car that could get her done. And uh, th- that gave them an edge as well. So at a point uh, when NASCAR got that well organized, over the years they brought this group of drivers along, and at first they were colorful characters, um, very short on answers, but very, very long on talent. Then the asphalt tracks came along, started with Darlington, and, uh, and, and Daytona came along in 59, but Darlington was way before that. And uh, they got into pavement racing, and it took another whole science and, and a lot more nuance to run the pavement. And they, you, you got another whole group of people, i.e. Junior Johnson, who, uh, <laughs> who after Detroit had screwed the cars up pretty good, was the one that Detroit turned to to build their racing cars. It was always interesting about the, what those guys knew 
that had a seventh grade education and were great whiskey runners and had done a year and a day over there uh, out of circulation. But they absolutely understood what it took to make a car do what it needed to do under race conditions. And Junior, the last American hero that Tom Wolfe wrote about, was one of those, uh, no question about it. And, and others came with him, of course. That wasn't all done. Um, the other major mechanic was Red Vogt over at the Cherokee Garage in Atlanta. Those, those people were so talented, um, and they, they literally slept in their garages and worked on, and worked on those things and then got them raced, and uh, they were performance cars. They were the original muscle cars that you hear about today as we reach back and people nostalgically build up cars like uh, Camaros and Mustangs. Well, let me tell you, those guys just after World War II, they built some serious muscle cars that could run on pavement and dirt. How about uh, during the uh, 70s now? Now, you mentioned earlier, you know, Joe Weatherly and Junior Johnson. They were like the big heroes out of the 60s. Uh, as a matter of fact, we had Bud Moore on, and Bud Moore, you know, Weatherly was one of his drivers, and uh, he was he spoke fairly highly of him. Yeah, he loved Weatherly. Yeah. And now in the 70s, the 70s era, who do you think were some of the really dynamic drivers? I mean, outside of Petty, I'm a, I was, I'm a Ford guy, so I was always a big Pearson fan, Woods Brothers kind of, you know, Ford thing. But uh, Well, who, you know, Cale came along at that time, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Bill Neely, who, who was a Sports Illustrated writer, said he was, without question, the most determined up-on-the-wheel charger that the sport had ever seen. And he, he proved that on CBS when he won those races in, uh, what, 82 and 83 at Daytona. Uh, the year that he, he uh, qualified at 200 miles an hour and showed you how to do it, and then he ran the next lap at 201 and showed you how not to do it. Those very famous <laughs> pictures of him up in turn four. But um, Cale Yarborough uh, was certainly a representative, and then we had this, this kid out of the Nashville Raceway uh, named Waltrip that came along, and at the same time in that period, uh, Bobby Allison and his brother Donnie, who was so talented, uh, they were winning all kinds of short track races and running 84 shows a year, which uh, both of them did. They, they raced continuously in the course of a year. Um, and they, they got their act together, and they began to appear in those NASCAR races. And in the case of Bobby, he built his own stuff and ran it. So those were those were some of the, the the dominators in in that time that that really made a difference, particularly in the seventies. But there were so many really talented people that uh, were, were part of that crowd. Buck Baker uh, transcended that. That was Buddy Baker's uh, uh, father, and Neil Bonnet, who was my colleague. Uh, we did a lot of broadcasts together, and we finally created a half-hour TV show called Winners. Uh, that, that I think, was on Turner. It might have been on ESPN, but we did, I don't know, 26 shows, and uh, he'd been hurt pretty pretty badly once. And he was Earnhardt's best buddy, a little older, and uh, he decided he had to go back and do it one more time. And that one more time was the one that got him at Daytona. But there was, there was a, a, a wonderful group of drivers in the 70s that uh, can't can't be denied and, and and you know you start talking names and you can go on forever but uh, 
I, I would imagine Benny Parsons became part of that 70s story. Uh, and Pearson. How can I forget Pearson? Oh, absolutely. Now, when would you say that the drivers became, you know, back then they were drivers, but they were kind of a little bit involved in the cars. Today, and sometime within the last two decades, I'm guessing, it seems like the drivers became more personalities than they did, you know, really drivers. I'm, can you comment on that? I mean, what's your take? If, I don't know. Uh, France always made a big deal out of the drivers. Mm-hmm. He thought there were two things that would drive it. One was that you couldn't read the numbers on the side of an itty-bitty Indianapolis car. So he had, he had numbers that were remedial on the side of a race car, uh, and they were easily identifiable. And he loved the idea that it was the cars that we drove to and from work uh, for our leisure that we are now putting in a performance environment. And, of course, he was 100% right on that. But he also understood the, the, the value of the marquee, that you had to have marquee. And he, w- he was very fortunate, and, and he hired people around him, a lot of media guys that weren't uh, understood. The, the, first, uh, the first award, that, in fact, one of the few awards that really means something to me, I won the Macklemore Award when it first came out. And, and Henry was a Pulitzer Prize winner from New York, had traveled the world, written all kinds of great stuff, prior to World War II, got arrested drunk on Hitler's balcony and thrown out of Germany. He was just a wild man. But he had a real feel and a real sense for racing, and every time he could get a chance and there was racing in Daytona, he was there. And in later years after his retirement, he he, uh, was a writer, uh, uh, sort of an ambassador without portfolio. He could write any story he wanted in the days of United Press. He settled in Daytona to be part of that, and uh, uh, that that award, the McLemore Award, I, I thought was extremely important because it represented NASCAR's push into New York and into Time magazine. We kept showing up in there, and 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 Fireball Roberts came along in that period, the '60s and '70s. Of course, he was killed in '64. Uh, and he won the Hickok Award. And at that time, the Hickok Award was a major award generally in American sports. And, and Fireball, who was a Floridian, uh, lived in Daytona Beach, was a kid there. And, and he got the name, not out of his racing, but because he was a fair baseball pitcher when he went off to college. And uh, he, he spoke well, he was loquacious, and he could carry on the story. And, and uh, France really thought the world of him. Um, and he was in that bad wreck with, uh, with Ned Jarrett and with uh, Junior, uh, Junior Johnson in 64 at, uh, at Charlotte. Uh, he, he was another principal in that period you, you were talking about, actually in the 60s, that helped to drive it forward and gave us identification. And uh, the, the media kind of lapped it up. They, 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 you know, this is terrific. They liked his name, and then unfortunately that was his demise. Now, you've, we've got a few minutes left here. Uh, let me just digress for a little bit. You, were, uh, you actually played a couple roles in a couple movies, so why don't you tell us about those? I think you said you were in Stroker Ace, you were in Cannonball, and I think there was one other one. We got, oh, we got uh, about there was, three minutes. There was more than that. More than that, okay. They were, <laughs> they were, they were minor parts. Uh, you, you did, I never uh, was seen as Clark Gable or <laughs> any of that crowd, but, I, but I, I did get to have a lot of fun 
uh, with the Needham movies, you know, there mm-hmm. was a, a whole slew of those that came along. And Hal was the top stuntman in, uh, in no question, in, in the whole business. And he invented so many of those pop ramp stunts and things that everybody talks about and sees today and don't think it's a big deal. And, and he did those things before anybody did them. And he started Stunts Unlimited. And we became friends over the years because there's always been a little part of me that stayed back uh, with those original stunt shows, you know, in the, de- in the days of the Depression, when life was worth about $5. And you could get guys to jump off a 100-foot whatever onto a mattress. Uh, th- those kind of guys uh, were, were everywhere uh, doing stunts. And, and Lucky Teeter came along and uh, did those incredible uh, auto stunt shows. And he became so popular that he was at the world's fair i think for ford and uh i mean he 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 was one of the sensations of the days lucky lucky teeter and uh he was killed in his last show which he performed for the uso just when the war was breaking out last show last stunt that was the end of lucky um he uh his ramps and all of his equipment was bought by a sprint car driver Named uh, Joey Chitwood. Oh, I remember that name. <laughs> yeah, well, you should. <laughs> okay. He invented the he invented the seatbelt. Oh, really? Yeah, he went to Indianapolis, and he was a hell of a racer. Uh, and and I was, I actually saw him run on dirt, and he was he was a piece of work. And uh, they they called him the Flying Cherokee. I think his people came from Sarajevo. I'm not sure, but it was something like that. Anyway, well, Ken, we're just about out of time. Don't go away. I want to catch you after the show here for a second. But I do want to thank you very much for coming on the show tonight. Our guest this evening was Ken Squire, former NASCAR commentator with ABC and CBS Sports. Everybody else, make sure you guys tune into Nostalgic Radio and Cars next week, same time, 7 o'clock. Okay? Be sure and drive carefully. Stay safe. Love your family. And we'll catch you next week. And maybe we'll see some of the car shows tomorrow night. Quaker Steak and Lube, Saturday, Coffee and Cars at the DuPont Registry at 7 o'clock in the morning. We'll see you there. Hey, hey.